because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. Uh, today we have, he might, he might be the most frequent guest in Power Hour history. He's probably at least top four. Uh, it's, it's Michael Lynch. He was the second guest ever on the show. And the reason I keep bringing him back is he tends to be right about a lot of things in terms of oil markets, and that is rare. So I think it should be rewarded. And today he's got a really interesting paper we're going to discuss, which talks about the very real and unacknowledged threat of a lot of oil production shifting away from the US and toward the Middle East and other places we might not prefer it to be concentrated. So Mike, welcome back to Power Hour. Thank you very much. It's good to see you again, Alex, even if it's only virtually. Yes, yes. We had our one encounter when we did that event at Harvard Yes, <laughs> uh, that you graciously agreed to come uh, interview me for. That was, that was nice because they allowed me to invite my own interviewer. <laughs> <laughs> One of my more pleasant interviewers that I've had, given that I got to you, choose him. You you haven't been banned from Harvard based on the uh, subject of your talk? Well, we don't know, right? Because <laughs> that's the last time. We don't know if it will be the last time I've been in Harvard, but that was the last time. You know, there have been uh, traveling to places hasn't been encouraged so much. Yes. Uh, so we shall see. I'll bet I'll, bet I'll make another trip there at some point. Uh, well, let's in hope my so. Life. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So um, let's talk about just broadly, what is this paper about? And what's the title? If you remember the title, it's got a long title. Uh, the title is uh, The Evolution of the Oil Industry and the Impact on Energy Security, something like that. And it's it's under the, the scenarios of the energy transition. Um, and it started because... Uh, the IEA released a new net zero 2050 scenario and said, you know, if we're going to meet this, uh, people have to stop investing in new uh, fossil fuel deposits like oil, gas and coal. Uh, just, you know, cease it all together right now, not cease production, but stop new projects. And, and that has some pretty significant geopolitical implications that the IEA just ignored, um, uh, which is funny because that's the whole job is that the, their origin is in energy security and coping with uh, things like uh, oil embargoes from the Middle East, um, supply disruptions and so forth. And they've kind of thrown that aside. I mean, I mean, so it's really not appreciated. So you think about when, I think when people think about exploration, what they often do. So I think the way it can be viewed is, oh, well, we're not going to have any new oil, but we're going to have the same amount of oil. <laughs> If we stop exploring, which is weird that people think that because, of course, it used to be, oh, we're going to run out of everything immediately uh, unless we discover tons of new oil. So it used to be realized that oil actually declines in a given area. And I think you cite the figure of five to 10 percent, depending on location. And so, yeah, it's pretty damn scary to think about the, the supply of oil de declining even five percent a year. And they're just not taking that into account. Yeah. And it's um, or, or they're just I mean, the amazing thing is they kind of assume that the decline will be relatively even geographically. That is, uh, the U.S. will decline some and uh, Russia and the Middle East will decline some uh, when, you know, the Russian oil companies are not going to listen to the IEA saying uh, you have to stop investing to save the planet. Um, nor will most of the Middle Eastern com companies. I think they're all state owned oil companies. 
And some of them have announced targets about, you know, trying to achieve net zero in 2050 or 2060, uh, but usually using carbon sequestration or switching over to blue hydrogen or something, not uh, ceasing production. So, you know, when you, th- when you think about it, uh, the industry generally spends something like 80% of its money replacing fields, uh, decline in existing fields. So if you suddenly stop doing uh, the, the, the new field investment, um, then you get, you get declines uh, at different rates in different places. So deep water declines a lot faster than uh, shallow water or conventional oil, and shale declines very fast. Um, it depends on, on the, the basin and so forth. But uh, if, if you believe that uh, the, the shale oil companies are going to listen to the people who say uh, you're going to, you know, you're going to leave these assets in the ground, you're going to lose money. Uh, you should uh, should well also embrace capital discipline, uh, which they're usually not that good at. But you know, shale oil production would drop very sharply, and U.S. imports would go up pretty quickly. Uh, and the only people who are going to be able to replace that are basically in the uh, Persian Gulf area. So we're going to talk more about what are the factors likely driving this, but I want to go back in history and just like why this matters. So, you know, we had this thing called the 1970s. I didn't have it. I was born in 1980, but I've heard, I've read a lot of stories uh, and I was at the beginning of it as an infant, but like, what was it? Because, and and I guess the other context is the last 10, 15 years, the U.S. has had this dramatic growth story in oil production. And so the issue of energy security has become even more on the back burner, we used to talk about a lot, oh, we're so dependent on Mideast oil. So nobody seems to care about that anymore or fear that. But what was it like, let's say in the seventies when we were heavily dependent on Mideast oil? Well, uh, the important thing is that uh, oil production in the sixties and seventies soared around the world, but mostly in the Middle East, their market share went through the roof. um, And the market was very tight going into the first oil crisis in 1973. So when uh, you had the uh, Arab-Israeli war um, and the OAPEC members, that is the Organization of Arab Petroleum Exporting Countries, uh, declared that they would embargo uh, countries that didn't support the Arab cause, um, but also said, we're going to start cutting back production until there's peace uh, between the Egyptians, Syrians, and the Israelis. And uh, there was no... There was no replacement oil available. Uh, the market was just completely flat out before that happened. So all of a sudden, you find uh, you know demand growing five percent a year, and you're losing five percent of supply. Uh, and you had gasoline lines everywhere. Prices shot up. Uh, people were kind of convinced it was the end of the world. Um, I'm told Al Gore. I can't find the uh, the actual reference, but I'm told he claimed he saw tankers hiding in the fog, and you know a lot of people blamed the big oil companies for creating the shortage. Apparently, not having read the newspapers, um, and that began kind of that. This came after uh, books like The Limits to Growth and The Population Bomb, and so you had a lot of people saying, "Aha! This is a new age of scarcity." Uh, I have a book. I don't know. Do you know Jeremy Rifkin, the the famous? Uh, yep. No, yeah. Okay. Not so I fa- but... Okay. Uh, I noticed he he's now a great expert on climate change and the transition. He's keynoting a Financial Times uh, address, despite the fact that pretty much uh, everything he said has been wrong for most of his life. 
but he had a book called, uh, you know, God in the age of scarcity. And he said, you know, it's 1979. He said, aha, this is, this is permanent. Uh, there's going to be no, no oil around. Um, and we all have to live with this economic growth is going to grind to a halt. But, uh, it was interesting because at the beginning, the first oil crisis, almost all the oil being traded internationally was in control of the seven sisters, the, the big uh, multinational oil companies. And what they did was they basically kind of shifted oil around. So everybody got roughly the same amount, which is not enough, but about the same amount. And this, despite the fact that a number of com- countries uh, said, we deserve to be treated differently. You shouldn't cut us off. Um, and there were cases where the oil companies said, if you order us to deliver oil to you, we will have no choice, but you have to do it publicly. Uh, and the prime minister of, for example, England just wasn't willing to do that. Um, in the second oil crisis, the Iranian revolution, what happened was you had um, all the oil loss was from Iran. Uh, most of the other oil was under the production was under the control of the national oil companies, but they generally then sold it to the seven sisters who then delivered it. Well, when they lost the Iranian oil, they started cutting back the customers in Japan or Germany, uh, for example. And those customers then ran into places like Algeria, Libya, Kuwait, and said, we need oil, you know, we'll pay extra. So they started cutting off their existing customers <laughs> who then went out looking for more oil. Um, and at the same time, you had all the governments uh, like France and England and the U.S. and Canada saying, wait a minute, we, we deserve to get all, our fair share uh, and putting pressure on the oil companies, but which didn't really work. Um, but by 1990, you suddenly had a big change, which was you had a huge spot market, something like 25% of the oil in the world was sold on the spot market. So when you lost oil from the uh, Iraqi invasion of Kuwait, there there were ready supplies out there. People didn't panic and go crazy. So uh, the concern is that in the future, you don't have a spot market. And instead of having a lot of private companies buying and selling oil, you have national oil companies in China and India buying oil. And then almost all of the oil being produced would be produced by uh, Kuwait Petroleum Company, Yukos in, in Russia and so forth. Uh, and so the political, the distribution of the oil in a shortage could be uh, very much determined by politics. That's that's my big concern. I mean, what are the general hazards of dependence on, I think you make this distinction, not just imported oil, but oil imported from hostile or semi-hostile countries? Well, you, you always run the risk that, uh, for example, you had cases with uh, Libya, uh, under Gaddafi. Is, well, uh, Libya's behind you, right? Just so, yes, that's... So uh, we haven't commented on your background yet. Those are, those are my peeps. Uh, they're out campaigning for me. I, I heard the prime ministership is open. <clears throat> I hear, I hear the, uh, the job tenure doesn't usually last very long, though, so I don't know. Um, anyway, um, so, you know, Gaddafi in Libya, Saddam Hussein in Iraq, uh, the, the Iranians would sometimes say, you know, we don't like this, this country, so we're, gonna, we're not going to sell it to them. Uh, we will uh, make sure that our friends uh, in places like Cuba uh, and North Korea get supplies. And, and that's that's a bit of a concern. It's not so much a problem in, on a day to day basis now. Uh, but if there were, say, another war in the Middle East or a revolution in Russia or something like that, then um, 
then all of a sudden you have a new scramble for supply and the people who have it will have a lot of political leverage. Uh, in 1973, when the OPEC producers said, you know, we want people to make a statement supporting, uh, I forget the, the exact term, something like uh, justice for the Palestinians. And most of the Europeans, the Japanese all immediately said, yes, we, you know, we, we support this now. We've been ignoring this. Now, all of a sudden, we realize it's important. <laughs> so that that affected the politics. You also had kind of this big movement, which is completely forgotten now. The new international economic order, where uh, a lot of the countries uh, in Europe especially said, the future is to the countries in the South who have resources. Resources will always be more and more valuable. We should make all these political and economic concessions to them. And that lasted for about six or eight years until all the prices came crashing down, which is what they usually do. Interesting. I had no, I just got distracted by that because I had not, I never heard of that school actually yes it's uh the foreign affairs had a had a classic article and uh essentially it, it it goes back a little bit to earlier days when people in in europe said you know we have to help our former colonies by giving them guaranteed prices for their cocoa exports their tin exports and so forth but this was seen as as much bigger and it was sort of okay, the, the North has to sacrifice financially to help the South develop because they're going to have power, political power, stemming from their control of all these scarce resources. So do you, so going forward, do you expect, well, first of all, let's, let's define terms. So what's OPEC and what's OPEC plus? <laughs> OPEC is, is essentially, I think it's 13 countries now. <clears throat> the major producers are uh, all in the Middle East. Uh, Nigeria, Angola, Libya, Algeria are, are much smaller. Venezuela used to be big, but uh, you know they've just fallen apart. Um, so uh, they control about uh, 35, 40 percent of the world's oil supply. And then OPEC Plus is uh, countries that volunteered to assist OPEC uh, several years ago when the price was weak. Um, some of them are small producers like uh, uh, Ghana, for example. Uh, and uh, Azerbaijan, um, Oman, Mexico are uh, more significant, but the big ones are the Russians and the Kazakhstanis, Kazakhis, I guess. Um, and they they essentially agreed to cut some production, uh, originally thinking this is just a temporary shortage, and then the pandemic hit, and they said this is a big crisis, so they all agreed to cut back seriously. But most of these countries, uh, most of the production is in the hands of national oil companies. Uh, Oman is a mix of, of uh, the government-owned oil company and, and private companies like Shell. Mexico is obviously all, um, all the Pemex uh, at the moment. Uh, Kazakhstan is something like 40% is owned by the government, and then private investors like uh, Chevron uh, make up the rest. What are their plans going forward? Because you know, we, from what I saw, there was an OPEC report like a month ago or so, and they seem to be pretty eager to keep producing a lot of oil. I think Saudi Arabia said something <laughs> like, oh, we're going to be net zero internally, but we're going to have no restrictions on how much oil we produce and sell. Yeah. And, you know, it's, I, I can't, I can't fault them because uh, almost all the advice the Saudis have gotten from the IEA and the U.S. government over the last 40 years or so has been bad. Uh, Jim Schlesinger, the first secretary of energy, flew into Saudi Arabia in 1978, and he said, well, you know, 
uh, you're better off leaving the oil in the ground. It'll only get more valuable. You know, producing it and putting the money in the bank, you'll lose money, which was actually wrong. Uh, and based on apparently one short research article somebody did. Um, but then he was there to say, please produce more oil. So he's sort of saying, it's dumb to produce more oil, but we want you to. Um, the Department of Energy and the IEA have long had this uh, Malthusian bias towards oil supply. And they've almost always said, everybody but the Middle East has peaked out. And so future oil demand has to be met by uh, oil, new, more supply from the Middle East. Um, the Department of Energy went so far on a number of years to say we're going to need 25 million barrels a day from Saudi Arabia in something like 10 or 12 years. And of course, it's never been, you know, if they built that capacity, it would have just uh, rusted away. So they're a little they're a little wary about that when people say, you know, we're all going to be net zero, especially when they then see President Biden you know, flying to Glasgow, getting in an armored limousine with probably a three miles of the gallon and, a, and an escort of a couple of others. And, you know, joined by all these people um, all, flying in on private jets and such um, and saying, oh, by the way, we need more oil because people really want cheap energy. So, you know, but, you know, someday, someday. Yeah, someday. It's just like me saying I'm going to have a chocolate cake for dessert, but I'll lose weight in, uh, in 10 years. Yeah, trust me. I need a better, and I'm trying to think of a good analogy for that. Cause my thing is I don't like, I don't like I, I those, that's a good analogy, but then I need something to capture the fact that it would actually kill you to do net zero <laughs> in my view. Um, but it is, it has that kind of commitment. Yeah. That is like, Oh yeah, I'm going to eat all this, all these calories, but then in the future, I'm going to have none or I'm going to have far fewer. Yeah. I imagine they see us as like, useful idiots almost i mean i have a similar view with china just that 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 because i don't think anyone who knows the facts about energy use and, and likely demand can think oh we're actually going to rapidly eliminate fossil fuels and so isn't it doesn't i don't know do you 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 would have more insight into their perspective than i do um you know i i haven't been a had time really or, or money if you want to donate a few million uh i'll be happy to accept to go back and look at all the pledges about energy people have made in the last say 40 50 years or you know 50 years since the first oil crisis um very few of them are kept uh usually what you find is the government likes to set big targets um knowing that they don't do anything to meet those targets um i i had uh, uh in the 1980s, I had a number of conversations with Japanese utility executives. And I said, well, according to the government, you're going to add two major nuclear reactors every year, and that will reduce carbon emissions. And they would laugh and say, we're not building it. We've, you know, we're not going to build any more reactors. We, we, you know, we've sort of reached a peak. We flattened out. And I'm like, well, they're like, nobody listens to the government. Um, and uh, you know, I hate to say it, but yeah, and, you know, similarly, the, the U.S., every president since Richard Nixon has said, we need energy independence. Um, and then Nixon had price controls, which increased consumption and reduced production. <laughs> and, you know, uh, the people who've done the most for energy independence are probably Rod Ronald Reagan, who decontrolled prices, uh, and George Mitchell, who developed hydraulic fracturing. Um, and the vast majority of other things that governments have said that, you know, they just they don't go anywhere. And I, I still, you know, I find it hard to believe that people are taking this even remotely seriously watching, 
now the pollution problems in India. Uh, the New York Times, if you go to the, I think it's page four or page six, they had an article about the pollution and people saying the government's been promising to reduce this horrible pollution. It's killing us. And they haven't really done anything. And you sort of go, oh, but are they going to somehow go to net zero in, in 30 years if they can't even stop the local pollution from coal and brush fires and firecrackers? And, you know, it's just this is where cynicism, uh, I think, is born uh, or certainly matures. Uh, anybody who's been in this business for a long time just doesn't pay too much attention to pledges. I think one thing that I worry about is it the more the idea comes out that this is doable, like if only we could have the will, like we can get to net zero in X time, or we can get to 100% renewable next time. I think it, it, it leads to the justification of restrictions on production and transport. And I actually place a lot of blame on a lot of the current problems here, but you have, you have one great line, which was this, you, you begin it with, of course, but I don't think people will notice it because you said, of course, but you say, of course, efforts to discourage the production of oil are entirely misplaced, misplaced since consumption is not driven by supply, but demand. Could you elaborate on that? Yeah, I mean, and I've said, I think I said in the paper, I forget, I've written three different versions of it. Um, narcotics policy was based on, oh, yeah, you we can just... That. Yes, yeah, stop, stop the, the people from growing poppies and, and coca leaves, then nobody will want to use this stuff. And, you know, that's all of the efforts have had, from what I can see, virtually no effect. Um, yeah, people don't say, oh, Exxon is not going to produce as much oil next year. I think I'll go trade in my car for a smaller model or, you know, I'll move back into the city into a big, uh, you know, high rise or or something like that. No, it's it's. It, it's just more a question of we're afraid to blame the consumers to say it's you people driving. We want to say instead, oh, it's those big bad oil companies uh, and the car companies that advertise. You wouldn't want an SUV unless it was except because it's advertised to look really sexy. Um, and, you know, this goes into it's kind of a nanny state thing, which is, oh, you'd all buy what I think you should buy except it's somebody else's fault. It's not human nature. It's, you know, it's, it's Madison Avenue or it's Detroit or it's Houston. And it's just, it's just nonsense. If you watch uh, who killed the electric car, they sort of go, Oh, if only the, uh, they advertise it with women in evening gowns, people would have bought them. Well, people didn't buy the Edsel, you know? Um, and, and I did find, I was, I was amused to find time magazine had an article, the 50 worst cars of all time. And they mentioned the, the, the uh, GM uh, EV1, which which is what the that uh, pseudo documentary was about. Yeah, it's it's a while. I mean, part of what you know, if you look at what's happened in this administration, I, I think what scares me is that it's in a sense it's in their immediate control to shut down production. So you look at the the initial actions or transport, right? So you shut down Keystone Pipeline development, and then have this moratorium on leasing and federal lands, like. That's the opposite of, oh, let's innovate something that can actually outcompete oil on some time frame. And so is that is that a microcosm of what's happening that we're saying, oh, we're going to go net zero. So let's start by restricting our production and transport. But if you can't really change the cost effective superiority of oil, then we're just going to be getting it from abroad. Yeah. And I, I can't. It's hard to know if they're just playing political games and, and you know, posturing 
or if they really think they're, I mean, I'm sure some people think it has an effect, but you know, it's like the Dakota access pipeline. Uh, the protesters said, oh my God, the, you know, putting this pipeline across this river, under this river, it's a big threat to the, the, the purity of the river. And the oil that was going, was going to be in the pipeline was already being shipped over the river in train cars. Mm-hmm. Um, and you sort of go, um, you know, this, this sounds good to block the pipeline, but in fact, the impact is negative. Um, you find people are often it's it's you know the old cognitive dissonance which is i can i can believe two completely contradictory things at the same time and and politicians seem to do that i mean joe biden says he wants good union jobs um and you know some of the best union jobs are in the oil industry uh they pay a lot more than construction um and you know i mean putting up solar panels is basically just construction and, and uh, the union jobs, uh, sorry, the, the oil field jobs tend to pay uh, 50, hundred percent more than that. Um, so his problem is, you know, he wants to promote the union jobs and he doesn't want to kill union jobs, but at the same time, he has this uh, segment of his party that says, Oh, you know, we want you to stand up and, and do something uh, like block the, the Keystone XL pipeline. Yeah, the cognitive dissonance thing I find I find scary, particularly today, that I think politicians think some think they can just say things and it'll just like it gives it a reality. Like they're gonna say, you know, we're gonna get off, I promise you, you know, look me in the eye, we'll get off fossil fuel. Yeah. Or like this, people will look back 50 years from now, and this infrastructure bill and reconciliation bill will like revolutionize. And it's kind of like there's something in their mind, but it's also just really. Oh yeah, I'm saying it with a lot of confidence, and I'm president, so it must be true. I I can't think of how many times I've heard a politician say, "We're going to end hunger, we're going to end homelessness, we're going to end poverty," and sort of say, "Well, first of all, going to zero anything is not. I mean, you get into diminishing returns and rising costs. It's not. But it's also poverty's been around forever, and you think you're going to end it, like." No, they can't really believe that. I mean, you can reduce poverty, maybe, but uh, you're not going to get rid of it. Um, So it's kind of the same thing here, which is um, it's kind of a fantasy world where, unfortunately, you'll have somebody who who publish something and say, oh, you know, uh, renewables are really cheap. Um, And that's that's why we need to subsidize them heavily. So, yeah. Oh, so. Is your picture in the dictionary under cognitive dissonance? Um, you know, um, I keep trying to figure out, again, I haven't had time yet. I've been putting together some numbers on the cost of solar and wind. And there are a lot of places where wind is pretty cheap, especially if you don't use battery backup. But, uh, you know, people are not putting in solar unless there's a lot of subsidies and pretty much anywhere. I mean, in, in the desert in Chile, yeah, it's great. Um, but when you talk about Northwestern Europe, where it's cloudy, you know, a lot of the time, the, the solar uh, intensity is much less. The land is more expensive. The labor is more expensive and so forth. So people will go. I, you know, I was really embarrassed to see uh, former Secretary of Energy Ernest Moniz, who's an MIT professor, you know, smart guy. But somebody said, oh, you know, in Dubai, they put out bids for solar power and it came in at like 2.7 cents a kilowatt hour. And he's like, wow, solar really is cheap. And I'm like, yeah, probably the land in Dubai is free. The government gives it. The solar intensity is as high as you'll ever get. 
And I'm pretty sure they're not using uh, labor being paid at uh, German level wages. They're probably all South Asian workers who are being horribly, well, not, not, let's just say they're, they're not living in the lap of luxury, I'm, I suspect. So, you know, the comparison, but then you still get people, I, I hear people all the time, you know, go, well, you know, wind and solar are cheaper than coal. And it's like, well, why is India and China building lots of coal plants? And the answer is, well, it's not really true unless you finagle the numbers. And unfortunately, most people don't look at the numbers very carefully, as you know. Yeah, I talk about this a lot in in my next book, Fossil Future. I should, I should send you a copy of Come to Think oh, of yeah. It. Um, yeah, I mean, I call this partial cost, part of it is what I call partial cost accounting. So, you know, when you're dealing with the grid, you just run into this accounting issue that it's really one integrated system. And so if you want to prove a point about the cost of something, you can just look at some cost in isolation. And anytime somebody says bids, I basically know they're trying to defraud me because <laughs> what is the bidding? I mean, the bidding is part of this process that A, treats uncontrollable and controllable electricity the same, as in you get paid yes. the same. And then the bidding is not what you, is not necessarily what you pay for it because of the way that the pricing works. So you can end up, bid, you know, you can say, okay, I'm going to bid this. But then you get paid the clearing price for everything. I've talked about this with Meredith Angwin before. She talks about this in her book. And so, I mean, the general thing is, do you have a way of using these intermittent sources that really subtract a lot of the controllable infrastructure costs that they can, like, if you can really get by with a lot fewer gas plants and not a lot of transmission, then yeah, maybe you could make it work. But usually they're not getting away with much uh, reduction in the controllable infrastructure at all. So it ends up being cost adding. So I, I just, I'm, there's so much accounting deception slash fraud when it comes to electricity. And it's, I think everybody should just be aware that that's <laughs> a possibility. Um, I think about 25 years ago, there was an article in the energy journal where they looked at demand side management and some of the people who were saying this is, you know, this is too cheap to meter. It's like, it's, you know, the investment pays, it more than pays for itself. Mm -hmm. And I actually, uh, Amory Lovins was one of the big advocates and I, I wound up debating him in Washington about 10 years ago. And I said, you know, the old joke is uh, an economist and an engineer are walking down the street and the engineer says, look, there's a $20 bill. And the economist says, there can't be. If there was one, somebody would have picked it up. So the engineer picks it up. And I said, Amory, you're saying there's $20 bills lying all over. And nobody's picking them up. You know? And this article in the Energy Journal said, well, just as you say, they're looking at certain very specific costs, but they're leaving out a lot of the costs so that, in fact, they're understating the cost. Uh, and, and thus, uh, it's nowhere near as attractive as, as uh, the claims of the advocates are. Uh, and I think that's also true. Um, I also wonder, um, we're, we seem to be heading into an era of increased nimbyism. Uh, there's a solar uh, project proposed near me and all my neighbors have signs up saying, you know, we want solar and forest. Don't cut down the forest to put in a solar project. Um, I and imagine your neighbors are mostly Democrats. Uh, this is a very liberal area. Um, but it's also I mean, there was another project where somebody was going to take a, 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 a field that had been uh, farmed, but was no longer being farmed. And people said, well, maybe we want to use it someday. And, you know, so we should we should not do it. But, you know, if you say, OK, we're going to build all these wind towers out west and maybe, you know, the farmers would be happy to have them, the ranchers. But then you got to build the power lines. 
and we just had a power line from Canada to Massachusetts blocked by Maine residents who said, you know, we don't, we don't like you cutting down some trees, but also it's not, we're not getting the power. Why do we, why do we care to help out the people in Massachusetts, which, you know, I don't agree with that attitude either, but um, when, when you, when you think of the problem of the fact that, you know, if you have a natural gas plant here, you produce the power here. If you're relying on solar and wind, the solar, you know, the sun moves, the winds change. So you're going to have to shift it around a lot, the power around a lot and unpredictably. And it's going to mean a lot more redundancy, but also just a lot more infrastructure um, and a lot more land use. And I think people are starting to realize that. And that's where you're starting to see some blowback uh, against the whole movement, I think. Yeah, it's, I, I talk about this a bunch in fossil future from two perspectives, because one is that it's not being accounted for in these rosy claims. And you see a lot of the, maybe, our, I don't know if I'm going to name specific names, but some of these people involved in these reports for the government saying, oh yeah, we can do solar and wind really quickly. Like they really deliberately omit these infrastructure costs and the and the opposition. Robert Bryce has been really good at pointing this out, that there's just so much opposition and it comes from the green mentality of we don't want to impact things. I mean, it's nimbyism, but it's justified by, well, it's yeah. wrong to impact the forest. It's wrong to do this. It's wrong to do this. But so they're not being honest in the projections. But then also it, it shows the whole philosophy that you can't really build anything if you're if you're really trying to be green in the pure sense, because you're against we can't impact nature with CO2, but we also can't create new radioactivity we can't dam rivers, right? Cause it interferes with the salmon and we want free flowing rivers. We can't build transmission lines. We can't construct these new things. We can't do the mining. So it's ultimately an anti-energy movement. And that's what I find so objectionable is at its core, it's anti-energy, but it pretends to be pro-energy. And part of how it does this is these bogus projections that do not factor in its own anti-energy opposition. Like all these yeah. solar and wind projections are made by people who would oppose those things if they were actually buildable. You, what I love is when, when I hear of, uh, you know, like a utility scale solar project and people refer to it as an industrial solar project, as opposed to, you know, some kind of craftsman solar project done by, you know, women <laughs> weaving and weaving solar panels in, the, in their, you know, in the, during the winter months the in their back rooms, um, you know, organic solar. Uh, it's um, yeah. Again, it's, it, you know, you hate to, you don't want to, you don't want to lump people together and demonize them, but there's an awful lot of people out there who are, who are being at least disingenuous um, and possibly dishonest. Uh, but some of the math is, you know, with the peak oil thing, part of my point was, you know, you had geologists doing statistics and they didn't understand statistics. So they didn't realize that their answers were wrong. Um, so it's kind of the same thing with the solar people where, uh, if you remember back in the nineties in California had a zero emission vehicle mandate um, and people finally started to say, you know, it's not really zero emission, it's remote emission. There's emission somewhere in the building of the car, but also in the, uh, you know, the power generation, unless you have a completely zero emission grid, which is, you know, I mean, even solar panels, that's a lot of metal and, and there's a lot of manufacturing involved. You have to ship it from China. Uh, a lot of times and so forth. So um, the the problem is people have this sense of, you know, there's an Eden out there. There's some completely untouched place because, you know, the human touch is bad. 
um, misanthropic. You, you know, you re- have to go back and reread Gulliver's Travels in the final book where he, he comes to hate humanity uh, in, in favor of the intelligent horses, um, which, you know, well, he has some good things to hear some fun stuff to say about the academics too. That's that I love, but um, you know, it, you wind up saying, okay, you don't like consumption, but you know, you're wearing clothes, you know, you're wearing, you're wearing Birkenstocks, you're wearing, uh, you know, North, North, uh, North slopes. North yeah, I'm not, I'm not a, I'm not a fashion, <laughs> fashion plate. So I don't know all these things, you know, you, you want to have all these wonderful things, um, but it's kind of like, you know, the, the old, the people in the communes who say, well, we want to live in this nice supportive environment, but we can't support ourselves. So our parents are going to have to kick in money. Um, and it's, it's unfortunate. And I, the problem is politicians and governments are often influenced by these people because none of them spends any time studying these. So if, if they find, uh, say, a Stanford professor who says, oh, yeah, we can go 100% renewable, it's easy. They go, oh, look, see, it's easy. Um, my favorite story, which I wish I could just inflict the penalty on, on modern politicians during the Irish potato famine, uh, an English lord got up in, in the House of Lords, of course, and he said, well, there's new research that shows you can live quite nicely and healthily on a diet of grass and seaweed. And I thought, did anybody ask him to demonstrate that? So, you know, I mean, I read about people and they go, oh, you know, I can live completely off the grid. Of course, uh, I'm an investment banker and I can spend, you know, an extra, you know, extra 50, 75 percent for a well-insulated house with solar panels and expensive battery backups. And, you know, you can do it. It just costs a lot of money. And I, I would argue, as you know, you often make the point, we have better things to do with our money than to, you know, give give subsidies to Hollywood movie stars to buy Teslas. Yeah, apparently we don't because we are now <laughs> contemplating a twelve or encouraging a twelve thousand five hundred dollar EV uh, credit. Yeah, but also but only for you on using union, <laughs> Joe Biden favored union labor. This, this is, I mean, people will write and say, "Oh, well, look, Norway's going almost completely EVs," and you go, "Yeah, there's like a sixty eighty thousand dollars subsidy." And you get to park for free and all this stuff and, and their riches creases. You know, this is this is not the big question oh, is don't they have some oil there? And yeah, they funny, and they're and they're still investing in oil. Funny thing about that, you know. I mean, Thomas Friedman wrote a piece about oh, Denmark is doing all this great stuff in renewables. It's like, yeah, they produce they produce all their own oil too. <laughs> so um it's you can't you can't somehow get through to people in most settings, because this is, uh, I think it was uh, Thomas Kunin's who wrote Unsettled. Have you read that? Steve Kunin. Steve Kunin, yes. yes, sorry. It's a great book. And he says, you know, let's, let's, let's have a, a real panel and debate these issues seriously. And, you know, people just were not interested. Uh, they were like, well, we believe what we believe and we're not going to listen to anybody I else. He, I had him on the show. I've had him on the show twice, actually, since then. Mm-hmm. I know he had some upcoming debates. Actually, I need to check if they happened. But I was ex- I, I heard there was even going to be one at MIT. Oh, that would be good. I, I thought I saw something about that, but but also there were objections to that. And this is, um, you have people often in debates like this, who, you know, they, they sort of go, oh, I have the moral position. What I'm doing is, is science. 
Um, and you should not question it. And in fact, people should not publish you. People should not allow you to speak. I had that in the peak oil debate when I published in the New York Times, an op-ed. There was something like uh, 250 responses, um, most of which were, you're an idiot. Um, a bunch of which said things that were just completely wrong because, you know, well, they heard it somewhere and they assumed it was right. But a bunch said, oh, my God, I'm canceling my New York Times subscription. How can they produce this drivel? Um, and there have been other scientists like Julian Simon, where people said, oh, you know, your argument against, you know, the population disaster, uh, it's dangerous. You shouldn't be allowed to speak. Um, it's, uh, you know, um, I anyway, would the like New York to Times article. I think there were two, but I remember the first one. That was a, that was that was the best thing I ever saw in the New York Times. I'll tell you that. I was so shocked <laughs> that they printed it. And that's that's how I learned about you. And that's what eventually got me to invite you on the show. There was one guy on the editorial page who invited me three times to write pieces and he then moved on. And I don't know if they, they got, you know, if the editorial board saw all these responses and said, oh, my God, why are we publishing this guy? Uh, there were a whole bunch of uh, there, were, there were a number of people who published responses to that piece. Um, and, I, you know, I read one in uh, Mother Jones and the guy could have asked me, said, oh, these people say this about you. And I said, yeah, that's that's actually wrong. <laughs> you know, um, things like that. And just uh, both The New York Times and The Economist had just like a piece online, which was unauthored, which said, well, I'm not convinced Lynch is right because there are people who disagree, but I'm not really sure. But other, other places like Foreign Policy published a peak oil guy saying this is nonsense. Uh, all these people like Lynch and Jurgen and so forth are, are, you know, just shills for the oil industry. Um, and some of them are still out there and writing. Um, I know uh, I, uh, some of them occasionally say nasty things about me, but uh, I haven't seen. No, excuse me. I've seen one person admit he was wrong. This is uh, Joseph Rahm, who used to uh, he used to uh, run the climate progress. He, he said, he was, what, did, what is he admitted he's wrong about? Because in my view, he's got a long list of things. <laughs> well, OK, he's a physicist. He he published right. something on his his blog page, but also on The Huffington Post. I'll send it to you later. And it was like often wrong. Michael Lynch has now said, that, you know, and he challenged me to. Well, he, he, he challenged me in writing to uh, a price wager, um, and he just had a bunch of quotes from people that he said, see, this proves he's wrong. And he quoted something I had done uh, 20 years earlier, um, uh, no, 10, 12 years earlier, but he got it wrong. We had both appeared at a congressional hearing, and he basically read, I don't know, the executive summary of my report. Um, but uh, he said, oh, well, look, it's clear. This is 2009. It's clear that peak oil is here. You know, it's just a, the, the, the debate is settled. I'm sorry to even write about this, but Lynch has got me upset. So I, I, my brother actually <laughs> responded to him and said, uh, I hate to tell you this. If you saw the way my brother lives, you'd know he didn't sell out to the oil industry. And he sort of, I think he sort of apologized. Well, I didn't really, you know, I don't really know anything. But then uh, 10 years later, he said, well, I guess we were wrong about peak oil supply, but peak oil demand is real. Yeah, yeah. So so he actually admitted he was wrong. He didn't apologize to me. In fact, none of the none of the peak oil guys ever did. And, and you know, you catch people out and you sort of go, well, don't you admit you were wrong? 
And occasionally you have somebody say, well, I got better data and now I realize something different. And I've seen economists in other settings sort of go, oh yes. And, and you know, you go, but 10 years ago you said, oh, but I ran the data and here's the answer, it's certain. And now you're saying, I reran the data, I got a different answer, but it's still certain. And trying to explain to people who do these econometric analysis, I just got a long paper about technological forecasting and it's very interesting and they get great econometric results. You know, oh, this, this looks great. We can fit this model. And it's like, yeah, but you know, your data is no good. Um, you know, it's especially people say, oh, look, solar is so much cheaper than it was in 1965. It's like, yeah, 1965, the solar panels were built for satellites in outer space. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's why it was so expensive then. Um, and they were built in small labs by Boeing or somebody. So, you know, that's, that's, that shouldn't be on your graph at all. Uh, they have gotten cheaper, um, but just to say, oh, they're getting cheaper over time, it, it doesn't work that way. How much is it that they're cheaper because you have cheap labor in China or Chinese subsidies? How much because you have uh, economies of scale with bigger factories? And, you know, that people just don't talk about that. They just pretend that, you know, oh, if, you, if the government subsidizes it and we buy a whole bunch, the cost will come down. And now we say, yeah, let's do that for nuclear power plants. That, that's a good idea. The subsidy, that's an, such an interesting thing with, there's now this mythology that really the government can subsidize whatever, anything and it can be infinitely cheap. You just yes. hear like, oh yeah, we want to do carbon capture and it costs this astronomical amount of money, but we're going to come up with some subsidies or we're going to come up with some uh, grants and our goal is to get it to X. And I'm like, if you could actually do that kind of thing, then you're the greatest investor in the world. Well, and they, they point to things like uh, the video cassette recorder and say, see, once they started, you know, they, they offered it cheap and the volumes went up and, and they got economies of scale. It's like, yeah, and the government didn't subsidize them. Um, I, I'll let you in on a, I'm going to publish a Forbes column soon. <clears throat> One of the big mistakes people made in the 70s was they said, OK, assume oil and gas prices go up forever and that solar and wind go down forever and they cross in eight years. Mm -hmm. except solar gas and oil went down and solar did, didn't come down that much. But what you have now is uh, if you, if you read the world economic outlook from the IEA, they actually have technology costs in the back real and projected. And the interesting thing is they say, well, assume that gas turbine costs stay flat and natural gas prices go up and solar and wind costs go down. And that's, that's a huge flaw. Uh, because one, they've almost always been too high with their, their oil and gas price forecast. Um, but two, uh, gas turbines have gotten cheaper over time. The data is not great. I'm still putting that together. But they do, you know, just like most things, you know, the, the, a piece of steel today, if you've made the same one, you know, 20 years ago, it would cost like 30% more. Cost productivity tends to improve on almost everything over the long run. And costs tend to come down, and that will be true for gas turbines. Uh, I personally think you're going to see a big reduction in the cost of nuclear power with the small modular reactors. And, you know, if you get cheap electricity from a small modular reactor, maybe carbon capture looks a lot better. Um, I haven't run the numbers yet. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. Any, well, some of these things, I mean, carbon capture has a lot of difficulties, but it's, it's just this faith that we're going to allocate this chunk to this approach, to this technology, 
and then it's it's going to automatically go down versus realizing oh no wait things go down because there's freedom of competition and certain people get it right and and that's what drives it down but not not Which, that you know not that the fact yeah. that some people have done it on a competitive market does yeah. not mean that you can do it with an arbitrary subsidy which which takes us back to Mr. Excuse me, Dr. Joseph Rahm, uh, who was in the Clinton administration, and he was like a renewables expert or something, and they promoted the Partnership for a New Generation Vehicle. And they said, okay, what we'll do is we'll have all the oil gas uh, car companies come in and work cooperatively to develop a hyper-efficient car. Um, I think in the end, the only thing that came out of that was the little uh, rear-facing cameras uh, that were intended so you could get rid of your rearview mirrors and have better uh, mm. air efficiency. But in the end, the, you know, Ford and GM both announced cars, you know, and they showed them off. Uh, I have pictures of them in one of my uh, slide sets. They never produced them. And it was, you know, the government was like, well, if, if only, because it, it it's industrial policy writ large, it's, or writ small, I guess. If only we told you what to do, we and the government, because we're motivated by the good of humanity and you're motivated by profit margins. And that's where you go back to Adam Smith, who said, you know, if everybody tries to make things better, then everything will get better, generally speaking. All right, we got to get back to this paper for a few minutes. Although I've been really interested in what we've discussed. So summarize for us, what are the major factors driving away production from the U.S. and toward OPEC plus? Well, in, in some countries like the U.S., uh, Denmark, probably Norway at some point, there's political opposition to allowing more investment. You also have political pressure from the ESG, environmentally and social, environmental, environmental and social, social governance. I think it's corporate governance, which I, you know, not, don't know why the C steps out, but, you know, telling the banks don't loan money to fossil fuel companies. Um, and you have some of the banks saying to the shale oil producers, especially your profitability has been terrible over the last 10 years. Stop, stop drilling, drill less, uh, pay down your debts. Um, the, the bigger threat is uh, banning a possible ban on fracking, which I don't know how that could be done legally. But um, but just trying to reduce uh, production on federal lands, which the Gulf of Mexico is almost all federal lands. Um, there's not a lot of oil production on federal lands, fortunately, the, the Permian and, and the Bakken are mostly private. Um, but just the general idea that uh, you have people saying, don't invest in the oil industry because, you know, these oil fields are all going to be abandoned in 10 years. Um, that's the carbon tracker argument. They're all going to be abandoned. And, you know, all the money you invested will be lost. So people should not buy the stock. People should not loan the money and so forth. Um, I don't think it will work very effectively. Uh, I recall there was a, a widespread boycott against Shell during the days of apartheid, and uh, Shell is still here. Um, 20 years ago, a number of environmental organizations sponsored a uh, ban the SUV movement, and people were supposed to slap bumper stickers on all SUVs saying something like, uh, I'm destroying the planet or something, which um, living in, in a very very liberal area like Amherst, I can tell you the SUVs have not gone away. In fact, um, the market share for SUVs has been going up faster than the market. Well, it, it's, it's much greater than the market share for electric vehicles, and it's still going up, including in places like China and India, uh, which is a little surprising. Um, so, you know, it's, 
trying to tell consumers, you don't really want the things that you think you want because we've decided they're not good for you. Um, and well, you know, nobody's closed down at McDonald's for health reasons. I, I like McDonald's, by the way. Don't tell my wife. Um, you know, um, people, it's, it's, again, it's kind of the, the wrong target. Uh, the whole fear that the earth couldn't support us all, couldn't feed us all, and we'd all be starving to death by 1980. And instead, we have a problem with obesity. Well, I sure do. I don't think you do, Alex. You look like you're in good shape. <clears throat> but this is, it's a, or in the 70s, when they said, oh, we're running out of natural gas, let's all burn coal. Um, and that arguably was a lot dumber um, just from the pollution. And I, I, you know, I don't say that because uh, my family produces natural gas. We produce a very small amount of natural gas, unfortunately. Um, but I, I do think, you know, coal is kind of nasty, dirty stuff. And it would be nice to see it backed out by natural gas, nuclear, you know, some wind and solar, depending on the place. Well, I, I, I don't feel, I mean, I, I love coal. I mean, in, in part because, I mean, in terms of energy for poor people and as the, you know, as the technology of harnessing it improves. I mean, my, I, I just always think about billions of people using less electricity than a refrigerator. And like coal is well, well, a lot of their help. So yeah, all things, I mean, all things legal, if everything were equal in a given context, including price, yeah, you would choose gas because it's easier to burn cleanly. Uh, but if that's you have the, the money. That we live in. Yes. Yeah. But and well, and that's why India burns coal is because they can't afford it. And frankly, you're better off with coal-fired electricity than burning dung to cook your food because dung has a lot of noxious stuff in it. And you know, they uh, it was just, I was really irritated. Somebody published a study. Somebody estimated that in I don't know, 20 or 30 or 40 years, a million people a year would, would be dying because of climate change. Uh, the World Health Organization, which is a pretty neutral organization, estimates at present 1.7 million people die a year from indoor air pollution that is burning biomass, uh, you know, instead of using commercial electricity energy meaning electricity so you know i mean this is goes to your whole thesis which is that you know wouldn't these people be better off um you know building building better sewers uh but all having uh electricity to live on uh, yeah that's definitely still my my view any um any other variables we should be thinking about in terms of driving away production from the u.s toward the middle east and russia well, the other thing is that um, the IEA argues that because people will use less oil due to climate change policies, not because of price, that will push the price down. Uh, the cheapest oil in the world is the Middle East. Um, U.S. shale is relatively expensive. If the price goes down, as they say, uh, you will see, and nothing is done, say, import tariffs or something. Uh, you will see a lot less oil in Canada, the Middle East, uh, the North Sea, the U.S., uh, deep water Atlantic, like uh, Brazil, Ghana now, uh, Guyana, um, and so forth. So that that would theoretically be a big problem. Uh, the thing is, you know, the oil companies look at the IA forecast and, and, you know, they sort of go, yeah, well, you know, the price now is 80. So we'll set a target price of 50. If we can make money at 50, we'll invest. 
uh, they're not going to say, oh, in 20 years, the price will be $25. And, and so let's not invest. But that that would be that would be theoretically uh, a big factor if if it if it were occurring and if people believed in it. Yeah, and I see some of those scenarios involve. Oh, yeah. the Like, I think, was it that the sustainable development scenario involved yeah. lower oil prices? Yes. And yeah. and the net zero shows prices basically crashing. I think they go down to something like $30 in 2030, which Man, I would love um, anyone who wants to bet me on that one. <laughs> you want to bet me that restricting fall, like a world where you're having draconian restrictions on fossil fuel use is going to be one of low prices. Uh, and any <laughs> amount up to and including all my savings, I will bet. <laughs> Well, uh, sadly, I had some peak oil guys who wanted to bet me that the the oil world oil production would never pass 92 million barrels a day, and uh, it hit that about 10 years ago, I think. But unfortunately, I didn't take them up on it. But um, it, it's the problem is trying trying to argue that human nature is wrong <laughs> just doesn't work. You know, I mean, I'm sorry. People people behave. People like stuff. There are, um, I, I have a picture of a Simeon the Stylite, who was, I think, an 11th century hermit. And he thought the material world was a bad thing. The spiritual world was a good thing. So he, to keep himself as far away from the material world, he stood on top of a tall pillar, like a 12 foot high pillar, just to stay that much further away. And he had people pass him up food. <laughs> and it's like, yeah. And, you know, we remember him because nobody else did that, you know? <laughs> They used to have in the Middle Ages, they had anchorites who were people who would go to a, a monastery or a convent and they would have themselves bricked into a room and food would be shoved in and the waste would be shoved out. But then I read some of them would have servants in with them, for example. So, you know, even those people believed uh, you know, in the consumption of physical goods. Yeah, I think it's always, I mean, you know, you can put it as human nature, but also it's, it's I mean, you can also think of it as like the requirements of survival and flourishing. And I think, you know, one thing I really dislike about the anti-energy movement is they just really demean people's goals and choices. Like even, yeah. okay, I'm not much of an SUV. Per- I mean, I don't even drive a car, I ride an electric skateboard and I ride Uber. Uh, so I just care about things with large back seats. And so I prefer minivans to SUVs because uh, they have more room, but like, you know, having a car that's attractive, that you look at every day as attractive, like that's a meaningful thing to people's lives. And just, Nothing seems to, I mean, the only meaningful way to use energy, as far as I can tell, for the climate catastrophes is to fly a private jet to Glasgow. That's the only moral use of energy that they seem to acknowledge. Yeah. Um, or to uh, import uh, sparkling water from Italy or, or Fiji uh, to serve at zero. Glasgow. Fiji is carbon neutral. That's what they say. Oh, God. It's a hydrocar- hydrocarbon bottle imported <laughs> from Fiji. Oh, I need to take them on in my neck. That'd be good for my energy energy liars series. I just did Budweiser the other day. Fiji uh-huh. would be a great one. I, I I would love to see the math on carbon <laughs> neutral water from Fiji. I I was telling somebody uh, in Japan. He said, "Oh, we're working on carbon trading." And I said, "When I think of carbon trading, there was a Dean Koontz uh, thriller." And the serial killer, as a sideline, he put ads in magazines saying, I'll sell you, you know, if you pay me, 
I will plant trees in the rainforest. And he had a little post office box and people would send him checks and he'd just cash them. And it's like, you know, um, there's a lot of greenwashing out there. And, uh, you know, I, I still, I read years ago, fair trade coffee. They said, Oh, we're doing such a good thing. Um, you know, instead of paying them 50 cents a pound, we pay them 75 cents a pound. And I said, yeah, but you're selling, coffee instead of at four dollars a pound you sell it for nine dollars a pound so it's kind of like robin hood saying i steal from the rich and i give to the poor minus uh, shipping and handling the carbon trading thing i don't know if you ever saw the seinfeld where george comes up with a fake charity to give people gifts it's called the human fund it's the festivus one uh, and it's oh, okay. anyway the motto is money for people <laughs> so it's like they might as well do that with yes. the carbon scale, it's just like, <laughs> just yeah, give me money and your and CO two will be reduced somehow. Yeah, yeah. Well, I tell you, I've I've spent most of my career listening to people say, well, you know, people in the third world, can, we've developed a solar cook stove, um, and I keep seeing people announcing that, you know, mostly academics saying, oh yeah, we designed this, it works great, and nobody seems to buy them. <laughs> Um, and I did see one article once where they said, well, you know, it cooks, it will cook like baked beans, but it doesn't cook the traditional foods of the people in this region. They need it much more specifically. And I looked on Amazon and I, I just briefly, I think it was like a camp stove, solar powered camp stove was like $300. And I thought, you know, you can buy a lot of propane for $300. Um, and uh, especially to sort of say, Somebody we were joking on Twitter is like, darling, I love you. I'm going to rush you to the hospital, but you have to wait till the sun comes up and charges the car. Um, you know, or I think it was the NATO secretary general who said, oh, we could have a solar main battle tank. And I said, you know, we, the Battle of the Bulls was almost a disaster because the planes couldn't fly in the clouds. What are you going to tell your army? Oh, you know, we're only going to fight in the desert. Don't worry. Yeah, this uh, is what, the scary thing is just when these when these get more and more like they're willing to sacrifice more and more things like, oh, yeah, let's let's do this symbolic thing. We don't really understand for the whole existence of our country. Like, yeah. let's handicap ourselves in war. Yeah, I'm sure China is is in love with solar tanks. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure they'd be willing to sell us the technology. <laughs> yes. Yes. And use it. You, uh, it's like using 84% fossil fuel economy to produce our solar panels yeah, right. and wind turbines. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we've got to wrap up. This is really fun yeah. to talk to you. Let's yeah. uh, remind people where they can learn more about your work, including this paper. Okay. The paper is at eprink.org, E-P-R-I-N-C.org. You can reach me at lynch at energy seer.com so that's energy seer one word.com and uh my i need to update my website and and put a lot more i'm also on forbes.com if you just search my name you'll see i produce a column roughly once a week and you're on twitter right you're i'm on twitter, twitter as laughing economist but it's not spelled that way so it's l a l a f f n g economist something like that <laughs> Yes. Search me, you'll find me. You gotta have a better spelled Twitter name. <laughs> I have a nice Alex Epstein. <laughs> well, laughing economists had too many letters, so I had to shorten yeah. it. Yeah. So I think yeah, I think if they search Michael Lynch, 
Uh, yes. They'll, they'll find it. All right, Mike, thanks so much for being a voice of rationality and energy and look forward to our next conversation. Thank you. Keep fighting the good fight, Alex. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.